Blog Talk Radio. following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never connected to Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to noneother at gty.org. That's noneother at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2019. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur.
We're going to be looking at the incarnation of the Son of God from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and I know that's not where the Christmas story is, but that's where the theology of the Christmas story is. Philippians chapter 2. Now, while you're turning to chapter 2, I will just briefly remind you that we have been looking at the subject of unity, unity, all the way back into chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, uh, calls us to be standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are, as believers, called to unity, called to be one. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one Savior. This is the foundation of our unity. We are to demonstrate to the world that we are one, that we are marked by love, and love is the product of selfless humility. We are called to humility all throughout Scripture. Humility may be the noblest of all virtues, for out of it springs love and all other deeds of sacrifice and mercy. We're talking about unity because it's a very important issue. As I've been saying the last couple of weeks, I have never seen a time when the disunity and hostility and even hatred on the part of Christians has been so played out in front of the whole world. We thank the Internet for that, social media. Uh, there have always been issues of conflict in the church through the years, but they usually were confined to the church. Uh, now those kinds of things are available for the whole world to see as Christians with bitterness and rancor and hostility and even the uh, desire to force people into certain actions because they want reparations or they want to be paid back for something that happened to them in the past. An attitude of vengeance and retaliation marks many who profess to be Christians, and this is a tragedy because it diminishes the glory of the gospel and brings dishonor to our Lord. So we're trying to look at how important unity is, and no passage is more powerful in considering that than the one we come to today, chapter 2 of Philippians. Let me read you the opening of this chapter. And I'll translate it the way we showed you it, it could be translated last week. Therefore, because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is consolation of love, because there is fellowship of the Spirit, because there is affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the humiliation of Jesus Christ. 
As I stand before this passage again for the second time this morning, I confess to you that this is a very daunting responsibility. This is very deep. This is majestic in every sense. It is overwhelming and unfathomable. And I, I feel that no matter what I say, it will fall far short of what this text is worthy of. I can only commend the text to you to read repeatedly and allow the Spirit of God to enrich these concepts beyond what I might be able to say to you today. It describes the condescension of the second person of the Trinity into human incarnation. That is the very main point of the Christian religion, that God became man. In fact, these words are so majestic that they appear to have been an early church hymn perhaps penned by Paul before he wrote this letter, or perhaps it became a hymn from him writing it to the Philippians. No other passage is as complete and detailed in its presentation of the great miracle of God becoming man. In fact, as you flow through this text, the descending of Christ from heaven to earth is given in a series of steps that are explicit. It is as if the Spirit of God wants you to follow the drama at a pace that sort of builds and mounts so that you can understand what Christ did. This is a, a Christological diamond, unparalleled. Obviously, it is about the Incarnation. In that sense, it is theological. It is soteriological. It has to do with the Incarnation, which has to do with salvation. But Paul's motives in these words, in stunning ways, are not really theological. He's not writing this for its own sake. He's not writing the theology of the Incarnation just so that we would know the doctrine. His purpose is really ethical. His purpose is ethical. This is, this is pastoral in its intent. These verses present the truth that the Son of God came to earth as a man to save sinners through His death and resurrection. And then, as we'll see in the next passage, He was exalted again back to heaven. That in itself is the heart and soul of Christian theology. But the main point here is not to identify Jesus in His saving work, but to identify Jesus as a model of humility, a model of self-denying, self-giving, humble love. And that becomes obvious as you look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude is he talking about? The attitude that he began to speak of in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Now the point here is unity, having the same mind, verse 2, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In order for that to be a reality, nothing that we do can be selfish. Nothing that we do can be to fulfill our own egos. 
we are to be marked by humility regarding others is more important than ourselves and being concerned about the interests of others more than our own. That is the point. Now the illustration of that is Jesus Christ, starting in verse 5. So Paul is looking at the incarnation not for its theological import, but for its ethical significance. Here is the perfect model of the kind of selfless condescension, the kind of humility that produces the unity that is desired in verses 1 and, one and 2. The fact is this, that in our Christian lives we mark out Christ as our Savior, and we look at His work on the cross as redemption, as providing for us forgiveness of sin, justification, and everything attached to it all the way to glorification. But Paul is going further than that, beyond that, and saying what Christ did is not only a redeeming work, it is an exemplary work of self-giving humility. That's the point. It's a pattern for us to follow. This is important for you to understand. This is such a critical area of Christian life and experience that there is no human illustration of humility that is sufficient to describe for us and demonstrate for us the kind of humility the Lord expects. Any human illustration would fall short. Yes, Paul does say, be followers of me as I am of Christ. But Paul wasn't humble enough to be the ultimate model. The ultimate model had to be the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how critical this entire issue is to the Holy Spirit, to heaven itself, as conveyed by the Apostle Paul. Our humility should be a copy as much as is within our power of the condescension of the Son of God Himself. You may think you have to stoop too far, to humble yourself too far to sacrifice what is important to you and what you want for the sake of others. You have no idea of what a deep, profound, vast, incomprehensible sacrifice really looks like until you look at what Christ did. This is the standard of humility. Anything less than this falls short of the model. Now we all know that when our Lord came into the world, He came humbly. He was born in a stable. He was born and laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. That He lived in a very nondescript town called Nazareth of a very common family of no particular note. We also know that his life was an expression of that kind of humility. He said he had nowhere to lay his head. He basically was born in a borrowed bed. He lived his ministry life out, sleeping wherever he could with his disciples, spending many nights in, in the outdoors, many of them on the Mount of Olives. Our Lord had no home. He had basically the clothes on His back. He had a ragtag bunch of followers. This is part of His humiliation. This is now the second person of the Trinity 
the King of glory, King of kings, the one who is the head over all things, the Son of God. He said the birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. When he arrived at his coronation in John chapter 12, he came into the city not riding on a white horse, which would have appeared to be more messianic, but rather riding not even on a donkey, but on the colt of a donkey, the symbol of his humiliation. In the next chapter, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, John chapter 13, and none of them were going to stoop to wash each other's feet, and that was the job of a slave, but there was no slave there that night because they had met clandestinely so the Jews couldn't find them. So the Lord takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around himself, and washes the disciples' feet, the lowest task of the low, and says that what I've done to you is what I want you to do for each other. He says the servant is not greater than his Lord. If you've seen me do this, you need to do this as well. In Luke 22, there was a dispute among them about which of them was to be the greatest, rather common thing they talked about. And he said, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you, but let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I'm among you as one who serves? The greatest one is the one who reclines at the table. The lowly one is the one who serves. He said, I came not to recline at the table and be served, but to serve. The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. In Matthew 23, He says, don't be called rabbi. There's only one teacher. Don't be called father. You have one father who's in heaven. Don't become called a leader. There's one leader. That is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Through his life, he made this crystal clear that he had come to humble himself. He is the model of humility. We saw more of that last time, but we're going to look at it in a profound way today in this passage before us. Now, we can't copy Christ's condescension because we've never been that high. We didn't start where He started. So the descent isn't nearly as far or dramatic. We can't copy His deity. We don't possess that. We can't emulate His perfection or His redemptive power or work, but we can copy His selfless humility. Now, verse 5 is the transition from the exhortations of verses 1 to 4 to the illustration of verses 6 to 8. Verse 5 is the transition. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is to say, we are to be marked by unselfishness, humility of mind that regards others more important than ourselves and the interests of others more significant than our own interests. It is this kind of humbling that manifests itself in love and sacrifice and makes the church 
bring glory and honor to its head, the Lord Jesus. Anytime that the church fails to manifest humility, it does damage to its Lord. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father over all. Everything about us is one. We are one body. We are members of one body. We are to live out that unity by emptying ourselves of selfishness and empty conceit and replacing that with humility of mind. Now, in order to make this powerful and profound truth unforgettable, Paul takes the descent of Christ step by step by step. Let's follow what he says. Here is the humility of Christ. First, verse 6, this is where he starts. Who, although he existed in the form of God, that is to say, he is God, deity, divinity, the eternal God. This emphasizes the point from which his humiliation begins. He is by nature in the form of God, fully God, truly God. He always has been. He always will be. So he starts from the vantage point of deity. He is God. He is the Creator. Nothing was made without Him. That is what John 1 says. That is what Colossians 1 says. That is what Hebrews 1 says. That He is the Creator. He is the exact representation of God. He is God. So he starts much higher than we and goes much lower. As Christians, we have been exalted. We are a chosen people. First Peter, chosen by God, beloved by God, anointed by God, justified, being sanctified, glorified, promised eternal blessing. We are kings and priests sons and daughters. We share the exalted position. We are the temple of the living God, the Spirit of God. We begin our humiliation from there. From there. But even with all of those privileges which are ours by mercy and grace, we certainly are still sinful. So we don't start from where our Lord starts. He existed in the morphe of God. Existed is a word used to express the continuance of a condition. He existed, present active participle. That is a stated fact. In his case, he existed eternally. It's not the common Greek word for being, but describes that which a person is in his very essential nature, which cannot be altered and cannot be changed. This is that which he possesses that is essential to his being. It describes that part of a person which, no matter what may change around him, remains the same. His unalterable being was in the form of of God. What do we mean by form? Well, 
It's that word morphe, and it always signifies a form which is truly and fully the being of the person. It's not an external pattern. And I'll show you a contrast that will help you with that. There are two Greek words that are translated form in the New Testament. One is morphe and the other is schema, from which we get the word scheme or schematic. They both can be translated form, but they have two different meanings. Morphe is the essential nature of something. Schema is the appearance of it. Morphe never changes. Schema changes a lot. Let me give you a simple illustration. I'm a man. I know that's a pejorative statement in this culture, but it's the fact. I'm a man. I have always been a man. Uh, I have been a man since I was conceived in my mother's womb. But that, that's my morphe. I am a man. That does not change. That is my essential being. However, the schema has changed. Once I was a fetus, and then I was an infant. And then I was a child, and then I was a teenager, and then I was a young adult, then I was an adult, and then I became whatever I am now at this particular point. I don't know if it has a label. I think that the label is my you're doing well, because people are shocked you're still vertical. So the schema changes, but the morphe does not. And the morphe of God is that essential nature as God which cannot change. So He is in the form of God. Morphe never changes. Schema continually changes. God can appear as light. God can appear as fire. God can appear in thunder. God appeared in human form. His outward schema could be altered. His inward morphe can never change. He has always been God by nature. He is the Creator God. And He basically claimed always to be God. And that is why the Jews hated Him. And that is why they desired to kill Him, because He claimed to be God. And for them, that was blasphemy. They said to Him, basically, you blaspheme because you say, you are equal to God. It just happened to be the truth. He was God. He always will be God. So that's where he starts, in the form of God. The second step then, he did not regard, that is, he did not consider that equality with God a thing to be grasped. The first move toward the Incarnation was in His mind, in His divine consciousness. He did not regard that equality with God. And by the way, He existed in the form of God, then did not regard equality with God means that the form of God and equality with God are two ways to say the same thing. He did not consider equality with God, literally being equal with God. The term here is isos. Isos. That is something that is exactly equal in number or size or quality. We get isonomer from it. Isosceles. So he did not regard the form of God, which means he was equal to God, something to hold on to. 
something to grasp. In fact, that verb, grasp, has the idea of uh, robbery, of, of clutching something that you have taken and prized and embraced and held tightly and will not let it go. So he existed as God. What does that mean in the form of God? It says in the next line, he, he was equal with God, but he did not hold tightly to that equality. This is where his incarnation starts in his own divine mind. He will not cling to all that is his as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. He will not cling to all of that. The incarnation then began with unselfishness. It began with the willingness to be humbled. Then the third step comes in verse 7, but emptied himself. This is profound and somewhat confusing to some people. Apparently, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. It says, but emptied himself. Not this, but this. Profound introduction to the fact of the self-emptying. The verb is kenao, from which theologians get kenosis. They talk about the incarnation as the kenosis, the self-emptying of the Son of God. He emptied himself of those things which were his by virtue of being God. This is the self-emptying of the Son of God. It's a very magnificent expression, a very graphic expression of the completeness of his self-renunciation and refusal to cling to the things that were rightly his. Now listen, he didn't empty himself of his deity or he would have ceased to exist. And since he is the eternal God, he cannot cease to exist. And since he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, nothing in his nature was altered. He didn't become less than God so that he became half God and half man or any other kind of concoction. When it says he emptied himself, it did not remove one single iota of his divinity or his deity. He did not exchange, mark this, he did not exchange deity for humanity. It is not subtraction. What did he empty himself of? Well, Scripture is clear on that. These are the things that the Scripture says. First, his heavenly glory. His heavenly glory. Can you imagine the eternal Son of God the creator of the entire universe with full omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, and immutability, setting aside those attributes that belong to His heavenly glory to be confined to a body. In John 17, as our Lord comes to the end of His time on earth, he says, I glorified you on the earth, John 17, 4, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That tells us he gave up his glory. He veiled his glory. 
His glory was still there because in Luke 9:32 on the Mount of Transfiguration, He pulled back His flesh and demonstrated His glory. And you remember the three disciples who were there fell over like dead men in the presence of that divine glory. You could say it this way, His glory was veiled in a human form. That in itself is a staggering reality that the omnipresent God became confined to one body. That's where His glory was veiled. Secondly, He yielded authority to the Father. He yielded authority to the Father. All through the Gospel of John, I only do what the Father tells me. I do the Father's will, not my will, but yours be done. And it says in Hebrews 5.8, He learned obedience. Wow. Never in all eternity had He the need to be obedient. He learned obedience by submitting to the authority of the Father. So here, He gives up the full expression and manifestation of His omnipresent, omnipotent, immutable glory. And He yields in submission and obedience to the authority of the Father. might just make a comment there. This culture hates authority. It hates it because it is so individualized now the smashing and crushing of the family, the attacking of every possible authority. Individuality, self-centered selfishness has literally become a plague that is killing an entire culture. And when you call those kinds of people to submit their lives to someone else, to Christ, they're naturally unwilling to do that. And there are vestiges of that same self-will and independent authority that still reside in the human heart because they've been planted there by the influences of our society. Our Lord yielded up the manifestation of His heavenly glory and was confined to a body. Our Lord yielded up His authority and learned obedience. He also gave up prerogatives as God. He could have, he says, if he wanted to, called a legion of angels to deliver him. Matthew 24. He didn't do that. He gave up then the right to use his omnipotence, his powers. Second Corinthians 8.9 says, He who was rich became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich. Second Corinthians 8.9. He gave up heavenly riches and became poor. It doesn't mean poor in the economic sense, earthly, monetary sense. It means He was impoverished of all of the wealth of heaven and is reduced to a man with very little who has nowhere to lay his head. But I think the thing He gave up most that was so amazing was He gave up His relationship to His Father. Because on the cross He said, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? John one twenty nine. 
He was identified as the Lamb of God, God's chosen sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He did not give up His deity, but He confined His heavenly glory to a human body, and thus He gave up the glory that was His. He gave up the authority that was His as the Creator of the universe and the Sovereign over all. He gave up choices and prerogatives to use His power. He gave up heavenly riches, vast and comprehensible possessions and privileges. And He gave up a favorable relationship to God to suffer under God's wrath. That's what it means that He emptied Himself. This is really staggering reality. No one can go that far because none of us possess heavenly glory. None of us possess divine authority. None of us possess divine prerogatives. None of us possess heavenly riches. None of us even possess a right relationship to God on our own. He had all that, and yet He emptied Himself of those things while remaining fully God. Paul says there's a fourth step, taking the form of a slave. Taking the form of a slave. He became a slave. A slave to God. Slave to God. John 17 says that he was prostanteon, face to face with God in equality. In the incarnation, he became a slave to God. He took on the form of a slave. Notice that. That's the word morphe again, and it means the essential nature. It doesn't mean he wore a slave's robe or he wore slavery like a costume. He actually became a slave. He became a slave. I was one, he says in Luke 22:27, among you as one who serves like a slave. Matthew 20:28, 20, Mark 10:45, Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Again, he showed that slavery, that condescension when he in John 13 rose from the table and washed the feet of the disciples. As I said earlier, he was always borrowing because he had nothing like a slave. He owned nothing. He had to borrow a place to be born. He had to borrow a place to lay his head. He had to borrow a boat to ride in and to preach from. He had to borrow an animal to his own coronation. He had to borrow a room for the Passover. He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. The vast rites of heavenly glory he emptied himself of those. The next step, number five, and being made in the likeness of men. He went right by the angels and became one of us. Again, the Greek term here means that he was given the essential attributes of humanity. He had the essential attributes of a slave and the essential attributes of humanity. We know that from Luke 2.52, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man when he was 12 years old. 
In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. In Hebrews chapter 2, wonderful statement, verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Surely He didn't give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of His people. For since He Himself was tempted in that which He suffered, He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He was made in the form of a man to die in the place of men and to sympathize with men in their trials. Romans 8.3 says, God sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and yet without sin. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Now this is impossible to believe. The incarnation, listen, is not an exchange of deity for humanity. It's not a subtraction in which He somehow is diminished as God to fill in humanity. He is fully God, truly God, fully man, truly man. God in nature and essence, man in nature and essence, being found in appearance as a man. That's the next step. He took the likeness of men and appeared as a man. This advances the previous point. Having become man, He was recognized as a man. Hebrews 5.7 calls it the days of His flesh. The appearance is schemati, schema again. The outward manifestation was as a man. He was not merely a man. He was the God-man. The morphe was the morphe of God and the morphe of man. That was His essential being. But on the outside, He appeared as a man. In fact, that's what people thought of Him. He was nothing but a man. He looked like a man, he talked like a man, he walked like a man, he acted like a man. He was a man. He was in the appearance of a man. Now, however, he is in the appearance of God, who is also man in glory. This is humiliation. Not just because he took on the appearance of a man, but look at the next statement. The next statement says, again, He humbled Himself. We're going down another step. He had become a man, and as a man, He had identified as a slave to His Father. And beyond that, He humbled Himself again. He was not yet at the lowest level. And the verb used here is simply to be made low. It's as if the writer is saying he went down further. He has given up his honors. He's given up his rights. He's given up his heavenly principles or heavenly possessions. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't argue. He doesn't debate. 
He doesn't demand. He goes even lower. And the next one says, How low? By becoming obedient to the point of death. His submission to the Father took him all the way to death because he was, after all, the Lamb that God had chosen to be the sacrifice for sin. This is the depth of his condescension. He said, I have come to do your will, O God, Hebrews 10. And what was God's will? That he die? He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. It was a voluntary death as a slave to the Father's will. It was not easy. He went to the cross with strong crying and tears, sweating, as it were, blood in the garden, realizing that he would be under the wrath of God, an experience completely alien to him. It was not a natural death. The last step, Paul says, it was death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Even calls attention to the next shocking feature. Greater love hath no one than a man who lays down his life for his friends, Jesus said. How low would you go? Do you understand this? Do you understand how alien this is to pride, self-will, self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, demanding what you want? Do you understand how ugly that looks compared to Christ? He who deserved to be where he was and who he was fully didn't hold on to that, but came all the way down, all the way to death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. Why is that noted? Because that was the most ignominious, ugly, embarrassing kind of death, the most painful torture that had been invented in human history at that point. Hanging naked in front of everyone. It was reserved for slaves. It was hated by Jews. Deuteronomy 21 said, whoever dies on a tree is cursed by God. And he was. This is the ultimate in human degradation. This is where he bears our curse on the tree, Galatians 3. The, the humility is, is actually overwhelmingly transcendent. We can't grasp it. What an amazing, amazing humiliation. Why? To die for us. He did this because, go back to verse 3 again, he did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, he regarded others more important than himself. He wasn't looking out for his own personal interest, but the interest of others. He did all of that for us, right? We didn't deserve it. How unsearchable are God's judgments. How unfathomable are His ways. No one could ever imagine a God that would do this. There was no such deity that existed in the world or exists today because demons don't invent deities like this. We, we would have said, well, if the Son of God arrives, we'll, we'll put Him in a palace. We'll make sure he's born into wealth and make sure he's educated in the finest schools and under the most elite teachers and 
We'll make sure He's loved and lifted up and exalted and honored and believed in and would never let Him be born in a stable to a nondescript family, a carpenter's son with no earthly goods, no formal education, and a group of very difficult, uneducated fishermen and assorted other unqualified men. We would never let that happen. But like the psalmist said, God's judgments are a great deep, a great deep. This is the profound truth of the Incarnation, and it in itself is marvelous because we understand that in doing this, He bought our salvation by His death and resurrection, but that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, do you think you have more rights to what you think is yours than He had to what was His? So you can't humble yourself? I don't know any uglier attitude than one that would say, I am more privileged than the Son of God. I should have what I want, what I expect, what I demand. There's nothing more ugly than that. Who do you think you are? It is true that you, as a believer, are part of the chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, all of those things. But that's all by mercy and grace, right? You don't have anything that you earned. It's all grace. For you to put demands on other people is as base and sinful as it gets. Such profound truth makes pride and self-will perhaps the ugliest sin of all. We should be a kind of people who say, I have received all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies from the Lord. I deserve none of it. And we should be in a hurry to humble ourselves. But people just push their own agendas. And therein lies the ugliness that can be reflected even among Christian people. Yes, we have a special standing before the Lord. Yes, we are God's children. Yes, we are joint heirs with Christ. Yes, Jesus even said, I've called you friends. Yes, we are all indwelt by the Lord Himself. And even the Father has taken up residence in us and the Holy Spirit as well. We are the living temples of God. Yes, we are ambassadors for Christ. Yes, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen, predestined, adopted, conformed to the image of Christ, called for eternal purpose and glory. We are all of that. But it's not inherently due to anything in us, right? So who am I to assert my rights as a Christian? Every marvelous blessing, every privilege that we have is a merciful gift of divine grace. How tragic is it that self-centered believers place themselves at a level that is even higher than the Lord Himself, as if you deserved what you think you want. 
So Paul says, unity is the product of love, which is the product of selfless, self-giving humility. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you have established that you hate pride and you desire humility in your people. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Help us to follow the example of Christ, unparalleled, incomprehensible humiliation for the sake of undeserving sinners. It's not that we earned that. We couldn't. While we were enemies and haters of God, Christ came all the way to death on a cross for us. And He not only is our Redeemer, but He is our example of selfless, loving, humble sacrifice for others. Humble us, Lord, that one day we might be exalted in Your presence. Lord, we grieve over the state of Christianity, the church. It's so profoundly sad that there's so much hostility and fighting and identity groups demanding things, attacking and assaulting each other. We know this is sin and it flows always out of pride. So humble your people that they may live in such a way that puts Christ on display. We ask this for ourselves and for all those who name your name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Like deja vu, right? Hey, yo, 
I'm back, but nobody was asking where I've been Cause Christ in the music is no longer the hot trend Logic says, well maybe I should just stop then But I never got into this for a spot in the top ten I do this for one reason, Jesus the true king son To help God's elect obey Hebrews 3.1 And though the rap world is ever crowded If heaven allows it, I'll keep writing for the 7,000 I know you out there, I still get the emails Against the church of Christ, the gates of hell will never prevail It's founded on the rock, and the gospel never stops So we dropping the topic, whether it's popular or not Sin is not just toxic, and the clock is going to stop God is not to be boxed with the wrath of God is burning hot We were locked in sin's closet, our conflict was cosmic God plotted to stop and hit the demonic with a shot I was copping narcotics, agnostic with a plot No optics for the knowledge of the God who often knocks Jesus rocked me with the gospel and it tied me up in knots So I hopped in a rocket and met the prophet at the top, yo That's just another way of saying I met God in the scriptures But we just gonna let that breathe for a second, you know what I mean? The Bible says he was been forgiven much, loves much We gonna talk about BC a little bit My depravity was total, not small like pops I was chained to sin, I couldn't take off the locks I thought I was a player, a match with the flavor So y'all know what the time is, but I ain't read Isaiah I would chuckle daily as I paid for disgrace My eyes were always puffy like I got sprayed with mace I would toot my horn at parties, and I would do bars Got so intoxicated, I was ready to do Mars Notorious for acting pretty silly in my city Philly Friends hear about it and be like, whoa, did he really? Because I played dirty, Bill Lambeer style Through great mercy, spirit-filled and dear child Went from so gritty, to headed to a gold city In Christ I shine, the world's like no biggie Whatever time to sing, I'm putting faith on the song 112, displayed in John, the way to respond When his patience runs out, then it's time for the ride, man Microwave, wrath of God, fam That's why, because of Christ, I got mad joy All I'm saying is I used to be a bad boy <laughs> But nowadays, I'm regenerated Born again from above, fam How else can I say that? Went from various vices to a kid that's married to Christ Using literary devices to spit it very precise My conversion to the master was so dramatic I just wanted to be an ambassador or fanatic The gospel was my tonic With Christ, I couldn't lose But to walk with God like Enoch I knew I couldn't cruise This walk is a beast But nothing's greater than the cross Saw the mark of the east And the of the laws, while Tower Records was choosing to carry G-Unit, I was on that revolutionary theme music, the brothers from the Lou held it down as well, but we noticed a big shift in 2012, around the time Jackie asked me about Calvinism, Christian hip-hop found a different algorithm, and crossed over, without taking the crossover, made us all sober, years later, is it all over? Trip asked me if I was still motivated, I was quiet, but I wanted to say no, I hate it, cause brothers in your camp causing lots of confusion, I love them as brothers in Christ, but not their conclusions. They want to reach the world, by all means, keep pursuing it. But tell me, why they got to diss the church while they doing it? That's what I wanted to say, but I ain't say it though. But no more laying low, I want them to play it slow. And I ain't dissing them, my prayers are the proof. Like Boaz without Ruth is unity without truth. CHH is like gorillas in the mist. With no brotherly love, it's like Philly don't exist. What's happening here? It's a different atmosphere. Cats appear most concerned about a rap career. Brothers overseas being slain in the sand while we're vain in our plan taking fame and some fans and i ain't got time to philosophize satan got a plot device i'm seeing lots of guys apostatize on top of all that donald trump's the president it's all good though because jesus 
Trump's the president. So more than ever, I'm trying to rep the Lord who bled. And we ain't never gonna stop. Word to Corey Red. I'm just trying to give a healthy demonstration of theocentric music for the selfie generation. See, the problem is sin, no riddle in it. Cause all sin got I in the middle of it. We're mad to praise and truly evil. We need to be born again without a Matt Damon movie sequel. In the gospel, God addresses our depravity. The lamb slain at Calvary, the depths of his agony. He rose from the grave with the funding grace. So when we come in faith, he'll bring us up from the sunken place. Our sins, decrepit depths, left the mess. No rest was left till Jesus put death to death. The beauty of the victory truly is a mystery. The cross of Jesus Christ is at the nucleus of history. Before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. Since our champion in the great war suffered, we gonna proclaim his death like the Lord suffer, so welcome to the Still Jesus Project, yo, we just getting started and we got a lot left. From the beginning, this is Ken Ham, president of the Noah's Ark attraction, the Ark Encounter, south of Cincinnati. You know, when Jesus was asked about marriage in the context of divorce, he answered, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he added, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Did you know his response was to quote from Genesis and the creation account? Many people say Genesis isn't meant to be taken as history. So why did Jesus do that? He even said that from the beginning, we've been created male and female. But evolution teaches humans arrived billions of years after the beginning. Genesis is history because that's what God's word teaches. And Jesus affirmed this. We can trust God's word. Discover the reasons why when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and share this radio program with others when you visit AnswersRadio.com. And this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions, billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. I was thinking just the other. 
other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the All of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cross Where Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of sin's great cost I'm saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust he died So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free Forever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Beautiful, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Beautiful, beautiful. You never change, never change. As in the days of Noah, this is Ken Ham inviting you to have an encounter with God's Word at the Ark Encounter. When Jesus talked about his second coming, he said it would be as in the days of Noah. Well, people would be eating, drinking, marrying, not realizing judgment was coming. Now, many people say the flood described in Genesis was only a local flood or was just a story, but not real history. But Jesus clearly didn't think that. He used it as a comparison to his coming global judgment. If the flood wasn't real history, then why should we believe Jesus' second coming is a literal coming event? After all, he compares it to the flood but the flood was real history. The evidence is all around us, in the rock layers and fossils. And Jesus' second coming, it's real as well. There's so much more to discover when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. I have a Bible Yeah. 
This is Ken Ham, editor of the apologetic series of books, The New Answers Books. Many Christians believe that Genesis isn't real history and that Adam and Eve didn't really exist. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Genesis is written as historical narrative and the New Testament reaffirms that Genesis is history. See, the Apostle Paul taught that because of Adam's sin, we need a saviour, the Lord Jesus. He directly linked the first and last Adams together. To argue that Jesus isn't literal history is to really undermine the gospel. Now think about it. Why did Jesus need to die? Because death is a penalty for sin, and he took it for us. But if Genesis isn't really history, then death isn't the penalty for sin, and Jesus died in vain. Discover answers to your questions about the truth of God's Word when you visit AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive daily insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
things continue. This is Ken Ham, inviting your family to visit the Ark Encounter south of Cincinnati. The Apostle Peter warns of a time when people will scoff at the history in Genesis, and they'll say, all things continue as they have since the beginning. Specifically, Peter predicts they'll reject creation and the flood. And you know, that's what's been happening in the West for over 200 years. Sadly, many in the church have joined in rejecting what the Bible teaches about history and adding man's ideas into it. Peter reminds us that just as creation and the flood were literal events, so will Jesus' coming judgment be. At that time, our world won't be judged with water, but with fire. Let's not scoff at what Scripture teaches. God's Word is clear. Discover much more about the historicity of Genesis when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Got it. 
God, our authority. This is Ken Ham, author and speaker on Genesis and all of the Bible's reliability. All this week we've seen that the New Testament affirms that Genesis is literal history. We saw that Jesus and the apostles Paul and Peter all treated the events of Genesis as historical accounts. So why do so many Christians have such a hard time accepting this? Well, often it's because they don't want to look foolish to the world. But we're called to conform our thinking to God's word and not worry about the world. Remember, God uses seemingly foolish things to show his wisdom. When we try to tell God what he did, instead of allowing him to tell us what he did, we're setting ourselves up as authorities over God's word. Instead, let's have God be our authority in every area. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again or share it with others when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
have you ever been in a prayer group and someone prays for a hedge of protection? Lord, we pray for a hedge of protection around Lundine and her family. A hedge of protection, like bushes? Why not pray for a fortress with a moat around it and armed sentries? Is the devil allergic to certain shrubs? Somebody! This phrase comes from the conversation between God and Satan in Job 1. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and all he has on every side? Satan believed if Job was afflicted, he would curse God, which did not happen. But let's talk about this hedge of protection. Now, such a hedge was not supposed to defend against an army. It was meant to keep wild animals from attacking family or livestock. This border of dense bushes would have been like growing a barbed wire fence full of thorns and thistles wild animals wanted to avoid. Throughout the scriptures, Satan and his servants are often depicted as wild animals. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour, and false teachers are described as wolves attacking the sheep. Praying for a spiritual hedge is to pray for protection from these predators. But there's nothing wrong with praying for a high castle wall either. After all, Psalm 18 says, The Lord is my fortress in whom I take refuge when we understand the text. That was what WWTT when we understand text. It's on YouTube at WWTT and they got a website WWUTT.com. And they also have another uh, channel called WWT Text. So check that out. It's WWT Text. And let's see. All I do now is play a song for you. This is Shannon. Stand up. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so it's With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary Took our blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice Let's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes Who hate truth, the gospel is not fake news Sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed, let us sin, we got the medicine It's still human emergency, the serpent attack You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts Stand up, stand up If you truly love the Son of Man, trust Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, stand up Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing And forever say To my composition Lots of rhythm But not tradition No kind of different But God's consistent No contradiction My proposition Through crucifixion He mocked and crippled His opposition It's not some fiction I'm spitting The Son of God is risen And my incentive For godly living Is I'm forgiven Jesus came to Unlock the prison And through the spirit He brings a new birth Like an 
nutrition. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proper vision is my suspicion. We drop the mission. Not to this, but the word of God is it not sufficient. The doctrine is that the gospel fixes our shot condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness that God's commission. Because Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gonna celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real to stay. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again, he came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again, nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Then, up, hands up, if you truly love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land, what's up. Stand up by Shannon, and you can check him out on netmode.com, L-A-M-P-M-O-D-E dot C-M, netmode.com. That's his record label's website, so check it out for more about him and his music. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Tall Radio, and one of the next for you is say a song from... This is Go Fish, and this is called Shackles Freedom. Mind. 
question, what is communion? As always, let's see what the Bible says. Luke chapter 22, and when Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's important. And in the same way, he took, well, the grape juice. After they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is communion? It is a remembrance meal. There are some who would say that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Is that true? If it is, Jesus is also a door. He is also water. He is also light. This was language that was symbolic. This represents my body. This represents my blood. Furthermore, it does not appear that he is somehow mystically present in the elements, although that does not make you a heretic if you believe that. This is what a dead guy said. J.C. Ryle, the benefits the Lord's Supper confers are spiritual, not physical. Its effects must be looked for in our inward man. It was intended to remind us by the visible, tangible emblems of bread and wine that the offering of Christ's body and blood for us on the cross is the only atonement for sin and the life of a believer's soul. What is communion? It is a symbolic meal. Does it feed us spiritually in any way? Absolutely. Not mystically, but when we remember his broken body, his shed blood, we are fed because we are remembering the gospel. What are the implications? A ceremony has never and can never atone or confer forgiveness. Number two, the incorrect consumption of the elements, zoinks, can lead to sickness or death. The communion table, therefore, should be for believers only. First Corinthians 11 tells us that if we do not examine ourselves rightly and consume the Lord's table, you could be weak, sick, or even die. That's a pretty big implication. Implication number three, knowing that incorrect consumption of the elements can lead to death, the believer is wise to examine himself well. So what is communion? A big question. Here is the short answer. Communion is a sacrament in which Christians partake of bread and wine in remembrance of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Wretched. We're hip. We're technologically savvy. Would you please join us in liking, subscribing, or sharing this video? That's Wretched. Big questions, short answers, and what is communion? You can see that on our YouTube page at Wretched, W-R-E-T-C-E-C-H-E-D. And also their website, they have a radio show and or a podcast, also known podcast, and also a TV show. So check out Wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.org, Wretched.org. Thanks for listening to me, Melissa Cantrell. You can check out um, truthfreetotalradio.com, our website, and also 
my website is smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-M. Smilesandstuff.com has my story how I became a Christian, so check that out. Thanks for listening to Triple Toll Radio. And I'm going to play another song for you. This one's called Stories.
not to try God, and if you don't like him, you can get your money back, as a famous preacher once said on Fox News at Christmas time. Are you kidding me? You turn from your wicked ways, or you will pay the price for your crimes against God. That is the message of the John the Baptist-style preacher. Again, we don't want to be wild-eyed fanatics. We don't, we don't want to be so extreme-sounding that our message gets undermined by our fanaticism, but we need to be proclaiming, you're sinning, God is holy, he's going to get you, he's going to cut you down, and he is going to give you what you deserve, but he's provided a way out, a means of forgiveness through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he commands you this day, repent of sin. Number five, his preaching warned people of the dangers of hell, not mere separation from God, it is that. But it's separation from all that is good about God, because God inhabits hell too. After all, he is omnipresent. But people in hell don't get to experience any of his kindness, any of his goodness, any of his love, any of his mercy. Nothing good, but they do get a heaping bowl of wrath. And we need to warn people about the dangers to come. If we love them, number six. His preaching told people how to be saved from God's judgment. Number seven, John the Baptist's preaching was loving. Number eight, his preaching challenged people to examine whether or not you go into heaven or hell. Number nine, his preaching called people to sincere holiness, sanctification. And finally, his preaching focused on Christ, not on us not on life enhancement. All of those things play a part of preaching, but the star of the show should always be Christ. Generations past, that is what they needed to hear. Generations today need to hear the same message. judging whether you're a good person or not? You know, that's a good question, but I would have to say it's just on how you how you did your life before. Hey, once you die, how, how do you know? Well, i got to ask you the same question. How do you know? You say there's no afterlife, so wh where do you get that from? Will Hitler make it? No, Hitler will never make it. Okay, so you think there's a heaven and a hell? Oh, no, there's not a heaven and a hell. So Hitler won't be punished for what he did. 11 million Jews, it's all over. Oh, no, he, he's going to be punished. In what way? Like I said, it's about growing. So you, you have to take the positive with the negative. And Hitler is unfortunately going to be a negative. So he's going to go uh, a little bit below. Below what? Below his life that he was at when he was Hitler. 
Are you making this up as you go along? No, I am not. Where'd you get it from? It's just what I feel. Well, we can know because the Bible tells us what happens after death. Do you know what axiomatic means? It means something is self-evident, and the Bible's axiomatic. All you've got to do is read it and study it, and you'll see that it's God's Word. And he says, it's appointed a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. So that's how we know there's an afterlife. The Bible is humanity's instruction book. And the reason the world is in such a mess is because we've thrown away the instruction book. Have you ever got an appliance at home and you don't read the instruction book till something goes wrong? Yeah. Well, that's what we're like. Do you believe in God's existence? Uh, no. Okay, so you believe nothing created everything, a scientific impossibility? Uh, yeah, it's a scientific impossibility. <laughs> okay, let's do an if. If there's a judgment day and you stand before God, are you a good person? Will you make it to heaven? I would probably come back uh, a little bit better. How many lies have you told in your life? Oh, millions. Ever stolen something? Yes. Ever used God's name in vain? Uh, not that I know of. I am not going to lie. Yeah, yeah, I'm lying right now. Everybody has. And Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Oh, of course. So, Ted, I'm not judging you, but you've just told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart. No wonder you don't believe in God's existence. The thought of him would make you feel uncomfortable. Oh, you know, no, no, no. Don't, don't get me wrong. There, there is a, it, to some people, there is a God. What about to you? Oh, no. To me, no. You've got to face God on Judgment Day. If he judges you by the Ten Commandments, we'll look at four of them, you're going to be innocent or guilty. I will be innocent. No, you won't. You'll be guilty. You're a lying thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterer at heart by your own admission. So you'll be guilty, and if you're guilty, you're going to end up in hell. I would hate that to happen to you. I, I, could, I could go to confession on a Wednesday afternoon and, a, and be Catholic for that one day, and all my sins are forgiven. I hope he forgive me before he do that. Well, do you know what God did so you wouldn't have to go to hell? You sure of that? Yes, that's what Catholicism is about. Well, let me tell you what Christianity says, biblical Christianity. It says something different. It says if you die in your sins, whether you believe in God or not, you'll end up in hell. All liars will have their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer will inherit God's kingdom. But the scriptures also tell us that God is rich in mercy and he provided a savior. You and I broke God's law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus came and paid the fine. If you're in court and someone pays the fine, the judge can let you go. And God can let you go because Jesus paid the fine. You don't have to go to hell. God can commute your death sentence and let you live forever, all because of the suffering death and the resurrection of Jesus. What you have to do is repent and trust in him, like you trust a parachute. Any Wednesday afternoon into a Catholic church and go to confession and, and say that, you know what, here are my sins, and then I'm going to go into heaven, I guess. But I'm not trying to convince you to believe the Bible. I'm trying to convince you to believe the gospel, that you're a sinner. If you die in your sins, you're heading for hell, that God loves you enough to send a Savior to wash you clean, and you can be forgiven if you repent and trust in Jesus. God's grace, His mercy can save you from death and hell. That's all I want you to believe, and then when you become a Christian, God will open the eyes of your understanding, and the Bible will make sense. Until that time, it'll be like reading a book in the dark. The Bible says that. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. They're foolishness to him because they're spiritually understood. Really quick, if you're enjoying this video, please hit the thumbs up button and subscribe to our YouTube channel where we post two new encouraging videos every single day. 
We also have many more resources available on livingwaters.com. Thank you so much. The reason I'm talking to you is because I love you and I care about you. That's the only reason. So you think about that. Is your grandmother a Christian? Yes. Yeah, someone's praying for you, and that's why you're here today. Uh, I appreciate you know the little conversation we had. You mean it or not? I do. It was a good little time. So. Okay, thanks for talking to me. Are you welcome, man? There's my bus. There's your bus. Well, this is okay. Nice to talk to you. Well, hang on. He's got to come around here for you. Give me 30 seconds. The Bible says we broke God's law. Jesus paid the fine. If you'll repent and trust in him, God will forgive every sin you've ever committed. Okay, you've got to repent and trust in Christ. That's why you're a confession. No, go straight to God. You don't need a priest. Great to talk to you. Do you have a Bible at home? Yeah. 